As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. There's no crying in baseball! I ate his liver with some father beans. I skinned. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. And welcome to another episode of Your Next Favorite Movie. I am your host, Josh G. And today, I am joined by Scott Mendelson. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's Absolutely. a pleasure being here. Absolutely. So I know you're, you are a film critic, correct? That's- yes, I'm a film critic slash box office pundit slash general semi-expert on the industry as it exists right now to the extent that anyone can call themselves an expert on whatever is going on right now okay. <laughs> we're all uh, throwing daggers in the dark okay so talk a little bit about what you do on like a daily basis i'm curious i'm curious about that actually well i, I write for forbes.com which i've done for god eight years long story short i've i i've a a bachelor's in film theory criticism. Uh, I always knew I wanted to do something in the industry. And I always seemed to have an, an interest and a, not to brag, a keen understanding of the financial side of the business, box office, marketing, things of that nature. And I kind of became a quasi box office encyclopedia of sorts. Not the only one online, absolutely not. And I started my own blog in late early 2008, just as a hobby or something to do at home after my first child was born. Um, and I just did that, you know, for fun and for you know, whatever, for five years until I got picked up by Forbes. And I've been doing it for them with even more of an emphasis on box office and marketing and what have you. I still review movies here and there. Uh, but, you know, for so as far as, I mean, in pre-COVID times, what I did is that I, I, I kept track of what movies were opening when and what movies were, you know, grossing what and what it meant to those films, to the franchises, to the studios, to the filmmakers. And obviously, I'm, I'm still trying to do that now in this summer of our continued discontent. But obviously, the, the shattered theatrical window and the day and date releasing has made that a little bit more complicated, but that just means I need to add more caveats and disclaimers <laughs> along the way. As far as what's going on now, I mean, with all the hubbub of you know movie going, returning, theaters are back. Most big movies got out of the summer, as you'll probably notice. Aside from a few sacrificial lamb slash, you know fall on the sword heroes like F9 and Black Widow, most of the big movies that are in theaters this summer are either Warner Brothers pictures because because of their HBO Max deal, they have a full slate of, uh, you know, they have a normal release slate. And uh, horror films, horror franchise titles. You know, you had new installments of The Purge, A Quiet Place, Saw, Don't Breathe, Escape Room, uh, there's a Candyman sequel at the end of the August. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan had a new movie out this weekend. And the reasons for that is pretty simple. A, horror films are cheap, generally. So you can afford to make less money than you otherwise would have and still make a profit. For example, The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It is going to, it might make it to 200 million worldwide. 
under normal circumstances, that would be pretty disappointing for a Conjuring Universe installment. However, we're still talking about a movie that costs $39 million. So it's about to make over under five times its budget. So, you know, it's, it's, and frankly, a lot of the big movies that have been sent out this year, like Snake Eyes, I would argue Snake Eyes was never going to do well. That was always a bad idea. <laughs> you know, it, it's, 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 and sometimes I, I wish that I could find a way to get the studios to pay me on retainer before they spend $200 million on Dark Phoenix. Uh. No, general audiences don't care about another Dark Phoenix movie. They're just going to go, I already saw this movie 10 years ago in Last Man, X-Men The Last Stand. Yep. But assuming COVID doesn't get worse and Quintos, for me, the, re, the next phase of the recovery is after summer. Uh, you can count Shang-Chi as a summer release if you want to, whatever. Um, it's actually second on my summer box office pool, so... But after summer, you're going to get Venom, Let There Be Carnage, No Time to Die, Dune, Halloween Kills, Eternals, Encanto, uh, The Matrix 4, West Side Story, and uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. All things being equal, I expect these films to do a lot better than Space Jam, A New Legacy, and Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe Origins. Again, Space Jam, even in the best of times, was a coin toss. And all due respect to Warner Brothers, because A, it was greenlit during a previous regime, and B, I think to a certain extent, they just wanted to be in the LeBron James business. Spending 150 on Space Jam was, all due respect, it was suicide. You know, spending 90 million, you got a chance. I mean, the first film made 230, 250 worldwide in 1996 on a $90 million budget. You know, inflation notwithstanding, yeah, it, it's, 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 they kind of got away with it because they, they slightly overperformed on opening weekend. But they're, by the time this podcast drops, you will have seen the film dropped by like 72% on weekend two. It was a one weekend wonder. All things, you know, the, optimi the optimistic scenario is that people keep going to stuff that they already really wanted to see, like Quiet Place, like Black Widow, like F9. So you have filmed like No Time to Die and Venom 2 that do well. Halloween Kills on a budget, obviously, is going to do fine. Same thing with Candyman. Do I think Candyman is going to do as well as it would have done in a non-COVID scenario in June 2020? No. But again, you're talking about a, a heavily anticipated picture that cost maybe 20, 25 to make. And that may, that's intentionally overestimating it. For all I know, it cost 15. So it will be fine. You know, it's, it's, and even if it's not, you know, Nia DaCosta already has Captain Mar the Marvels on her resume. She'll be okay. And so the, the theoretical happy ending of all of this is that 2021 comes to an end with Spider-Man No Way Home being probably the biggest Hollywood movie of the grocer of the year and possibly, possibly the first billion dollar movies in Star Wars. That's no, not remotely a guarantee. They'd be thrilled to do as much as Hi Mom did just in China this year. That film came out over New Year's weekend, Chinese New Year, uh, in late January, and did $825 million in China alone. Opening concurrently with Detective Chinatown 3, which did $685 million in China alone. But wow. that was off a $399 opening weekend, so it was heavily front-loaded. 
because Chinese audiences didn't care for it. For ironically, a lot of the same reasons they rejected F9 after opening night, which is that it's, it's heavily into mythology, it's big on world building, you know, it's, it's setting up sequels. And, you know, quite frankly, Chinese audiences don't care about that stuff any more than American audiences do. You know, with Marvel, that's the seasoning. It's never the main course. And that's, you know, one of their not-so-secret secrets. Most Marvel movies are pretty standalone. The teases for what may or may not come next are, you know, they're Easter eggs. They're, you know, they're little tidbits for people that actually do watch all of these films religiously. But if you're walking into Ant-Man and the Wasp, you don't have to have seen Thor Ragnarok. If you're walking into Black Panther, you do not have to have seen uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. You kind of, you know, it helps to see Civil War. There's a little flashback right at the beginning, just in case. Generally speaking, most Marvel movies, they require you, they loosely require you to have seen the big event pictures, the Avengers and the Captain America sequels, and maybe the previous installment of that solo franchise. So you walk into Thor Ragnarok, it helps if you've seen Thor The Dark World, but you don't have to see anything else. I mean, it, you know, nothing that all the, you know, nothing that, that Thor does in Thor Age of, or excuse me, Avengers Age of Ultron affects uh, anything that happens in uh, Thor Ragnarok. I mean, yeah, sure, you know why. You already know that Hulk's on planet whatever, but who cares? So yeah, I'm getting off, I'm getting off subject. I apologize. <laughs> you can reel me back in if you want. Fine, I'm fascinated. I don't know who my, my listening is, but I'm fascinated by this kind of stuff, so. But no, I mean, the, the important thing to remember is that A, we're still in a pandemic. B, this is the first stage of a theoretical recovery. It's the first act at best. And there may be three acts, there may be five acts. We don't know. <laughs> you know, this could be back to normal, at least for tentpoles, by Christmas for Spider-Man. It could be back to normal by summer when Jurassic World Dominion makes about as much as Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, theoretically. It could be back to normal by December 2022, when either Aquaman and the Hidden Kingdom, or Lost Kingdom, Aquaman has a kingdom, I don't remember, or James Cameron's Avatar 2, which are both slotted on the same day at the moment. I'm guessing one's going to move. Yeah, I would think so. Um, <laughs> open on uh, December 16th, 2022. And nothing would make me happier in a skewed, ironic way than if... After all of these years and after all this naysaying, Avatar 2 is the one that finally cuts the ribbon and boom, Hollywood is back. Oh, well, yeah. I, James Cameron and his comeback. I can see it. Well, we'll see. Again, I, would, I can't imagine two directors named James making part two movies to incredibly po- popular December releases, both of which allegedly take place quite a bit underwater, involving a quasi-human guy that goes into a secondary fantasy world and becomes one of them and their quasi leader. I'm guessing they're not opening on the same day. <laughs> no kidding. I love the correlation you're making there. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about it, <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but yes, I think we're going to uh, get to the movie for the night. You ready? Yeah. I'm letting you do this. Cause this is actually my favorite movie and I don't want to be put under the spotlight. So of course, if you guys have listened to my, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> If you guys have listened to my very first episode where I went through my top 10, you'll know. This is Silence of the Lambs. The FBI is tracking a killer. 
spook easily? Not yet, sir. They've brought in a rookie agent. Be very careful with Hannibal Lecter. Who's consulting a known psychopath. What does he do, this man you seek? He kills women. And together, they are the next victim's only hope. <laughs> Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn. In a Jonathan Demme picture, The Silence of the Lambs, rated R. All right, so when did you first see this film? I saw it somewhat late in the game. This was back before I was allowed to see R-rated movies, Dart Blanche. Uh, there were some exceptions here and there. Because I wasn't allowed to see the movie, but I was allowed to read the book because they wanted to. my parents wanted to encourage me to read, I read the book. <laughs> I read the book. I read, I read Dragon. It was, it was weird. My parents, and it was fine. I turned up pretty well adjusted. I could read movie magazines from movies that I was not allowed to see. I could read novels about from movies that I, to or from movies that I wasn't allowed to see. I could watch pretty much anything as long as it was on, you know, an R-rated movie that was on network TV that was theoretically edited for content. So that's how, actually how I saw a lot of quote unquote classics for the first time. And then, you know, a few years later when I was allowed to see R-rated movies when I was about 13, I would go and I would rent them on VHS and realize they didn't cut much out. Because <laughs> I don't care I don't care that much about nudity or profanity. I got most of the violence intact. Yay. But anyway, I did see Silence of the Lambs on the, I want to say it was the night that it premiered on premium cable television at Showtime. But don't quote me on that. No, no, it was, it was after that. Because it had already won all the Oscars. And it was one that I very much wanted to see. And my parents eventually just said, fine, whatever. And my dad watched it with me, I guess. This, I mean, he had seen it. He knew it was good. And I loved it then. And it's always been, you know, in and around one of my favorites. But the last 30 years have been very kind to it. In that there have been, you know, it basically kickstarted a, a mini wave of A, horror movies for adults. Something that was big in the mid 70s uh uh the late 60s early 70s with uh, uh rosemary's baby the exorcist the omen and a few others that that you know don't look now or whatever and then halloween came along and you know then we get a decade of so of slasher films for teenagers that's not a criticism some of them are very good but you know different demographics being served Silence of the lambs and it's it's massive success commercially critically and artistically paved the way for a number of somewhat prestigious horror films for grown-ups. Uh, so in this wave, we got Bram Stoker's Dracula, Interview with the Vampire, uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That was absolutely an attempt to make a Nightmare on Elm Street film for movie snobs that love Silence of the Lambs. And again, that's not a criticism. That's might be one of his best movies. You know, I, I, I waddle back and forth between that and Scream 2. Uh, yes, yeah, Scream 2 is my favorite of the series. That's, yeah. Interesting. I, I think the first one, first screen is fine. I, I like the second one even better. Uh, it, it, um, but anyway, back to Sons of the Lambs. But even in the, you know, it's, it's, you know, the serial killer melodrama, the serial killer thriller is its own genre. And it was kind of before Sons of the Lambs, but not really. The point that, you know, uh, six years earlier, five years earlier when Manhunter came out, it was somewhat of an unknown quality quantity to most general moviegoers that you almost had to explain, you know, what is a profiler? What do they do? You know, their, their procedure and their, their, what have you. 
Salsa Lambs doesn't quite play in that ballpark because it's for one thing, it's a, it's a slightly more Hannibal Lecter focused book, you know, by default. And, you know, as so it's a more you know, uh, Hannibal Lecter focused movie. And it's also because the person in question, the protagonist is a trainee. She's sort of, you know, she, she knows her stuff, but to a certain extent, she's sort of learning a little bit here and there. So we are also getting that information right. in quote unquote real time. But as for the film, I mean, it always struck me as this towering American fairy tale. You know, obviously it's a very grim fairy tale, as most of them were back in the day, in that it is this blend of very distinct naturalistic realism. You know, the, the people that she talks to in small towns look like they actually live in small towns with porch doors and, and you know, busted windows and, and clear signs of economic struggle. Which, of course, that's where she's, you know, that's, that's what she's trying to get away from. Not to paraphrase Annabelle Lecter in a key monologue. The film, you know, in terms of serial killer cinema, something that's always fascinated me about the movie is that with Jamie Gum, played by Ted Levine, and his nickname is, of course, Buffalo Bill, and Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Annabelle the Cannibal Lecter, you have these two dueling serial killers, one of whom represents one of the more realistic serial killers you'll ever see on screen, at least at that point. And the other one represents a very prototypical what Hollywood thinks serial killers are like. <laughs> in that they're, you know, glorified Bond villains. But it works. A, because that kind of character was still somewhat unique in 1991. I mean, we were just three years removed from um, Hans, or, uh, Alan Rickman stealing Die Hard. We were a year and a half removed from Jack Nicholson stealing, walking away with Batman. So, you know, other than, you know, Star Wars and James Bond, the idea of this massively larger than life villain, I'm not going to say, you know, it was a groundbreaking, but it wasn't par for the course, unless you were really into, you know, horror films. It's a film that blends, frankly, it, it blends deeply personalist political subtext and L text in a way that still holds up in terms of feminist discourse. And it's a deeply compassionate and empathetic picture in a way that, that stood out then and stood out now. And frankly, I think that's where it, it, you know, in retrospect, ran into some trouble in terms of its reputation in and around the trans community. To me, and, and you know, I always felt this way about you know, The Simpsons and its treatment of Abu, you know, if you are not a jerk and you watch The Simpsons, you will see Abu, excuse me, Abu as a nice, decent, kind-hearted, hardworking citizen of Springfield who everyone knows and likes and respects, who just happens to be of Indian descent in a town where there's not a ton of immigrants. And I think Sansa Lambs is an example of deeply empathetic art that was perhaps watched, consumed, and digested by unempathetic people. And also to be fair, then and now, there, you know, even though Buffalo Bill is not transgender, the film comes right out and says that, and the novel even makes that even more explicit. I kind of, there are a couple of deleted scenes that I wish had made the final cut because it probably would have nipped that controversy in the bud 30 years ago. Uh, there is a scene where Jack Crawford is visiting a, a, in a hospital related to sexual reassignment 
And the doctor says, you know, basically, we don't want to stigmatize this community. And he says, I don't want to either, but I got to catch this guy. And catching this person quickly is, I'm heavily paraphrasing here, right. catching this guy quickly is the best way to do that. And, you know, I don't want, you know, I, I understand, but we need, we need this information. But that aside, that is one very large digression that tends to come up when you talk about the movie today, understandably. Because the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's, it's whether you look at Silence of the Lambs through that lens or not, there weren't a lot of counter uh, examples often in pop culture at that time. And it's one thing for me to say as, you know, Mr. Enlightened, blah, 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 say, oh, you know, I was never going to watch that movie and think that, oh, it had something of, of negative to say about transgender people or that, you know, I was going to watch, uh, you know, I was going to watch WWF wrestling and thought the Iron Sheik meant that I should hate Middle Eastern people or whatever. But to people in that community, it was the only, it was the only game in town. Right. So it was still... And it's still an issue that regardless of the intent, A, plenty of dumb people watch smart movies and take the wrong message. And B, there weren't a lot of counter arguments to say, no, 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 this is the kind of representation I want to see. And so, I, yeah, I saw it probably April 1992. And then a few years later, I got into reading the books of uh, John Douglas, who is the profiler that served right. as the main consultant of the picture. He was, Jack Crawford was loosely based off him. He was a pioneering FBI profiler in the, I want to say the 70s. Uh, he was one of the first. His, the one guy below, before him, Robert Ressler, who also wrote a few books. Robert Ressler is the guy that coined the phrase serial killer. So okay. these two guys were... You know, basically, they invented this kind of investigation as we know it. And that's, that's sort of what David Fincher's Mindhunter show was about, which was loosely based off of John Douglas's most famous book, Mindhunter, where, which is one of the several books where he, he details his career in the FBI as a profiler. And I am rambling. If there's a certain question you want to ask, I, should I give you the mic or should I keep going? You're good. I was just, I was gonna actually say it's funny you mentioned that you know how you talked about network TV because the first time I saw Science of the Lambs was on network TV edited for television. You know, I saw it on a Sunday afternoon. It was coming on, and my mom wanted to watch it because apparently she had seen it. I'd never seen it, and I just sat there and watched it. And was just captivated by it. And I remember she left to go to church that evening because it was a Sunday. She's like, record the rest of this. I want to watch it. And I just sat there and watched it. And when she came home and watched the end, I watched the end again with her without, you know, just it wasn't until a few years later when I actually saw the R-rated version, you know, the full uncut version. But yeah, I was captivated from day uh, I'm one. Curious, I'm curious how much was actually cut out aside from obviously F-bombs and outright nudity because it's a dark, grim picture, but the violence is very clinical, but very sparse. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you know, for obvious reasons, it's not kiss the girls where they have, and that movie is fine, where you have you know a long drawn out scene of a young girl being tearfully led into the woods, you know, with a rope while she's nude. Uh, you know, it's not that kind of movie, intentionally so. You know, I remember reading that when you know Jonathan Demme approached Jodie Foster about the part, Michelle Pfeiffer had turned it down already just because the material bugged her out. Right. And the first question, you know, the first thing Jodie Foster says, you know, my main concern is that, you know, I don't want this to glamorize violence against women. 
And Jonathan Demme said, yeah, that's my main concern too. And it certainly doesn't for any number of reasons. The main murderer is not a glamorous figure. The victims are chosen. You know, it, it's not a situation where, like, again, I don't mean to pick on Kiss the Girls, but that, you know, James Patterson is, is a pulpier writer, I would say. You know, a, a film like Kiss the Girls where you have a, you have, you have a guy that, that can't get laid and goes after pretty girls that won't sleep with him. You know, that's a simplistic thing, but, you know, that's, that's the movie. So that's the Lambs is a lot like Seven, which that a lot of the violence is off screen or it's implied. And it's a, it, it feels much more oppressively violent than it actually is because it stings. The, the exception to that is, of course, Hannibal Lecter's escape at the end of the second act. Well, that's what I was going to say. The one was, spot where the movie. That, that was the part I was going to say is that from what I remember, if I got my memory right, the only scene that was different and they still showed it. They just almost had like a zoomed out further shot of the flaying. Yeah, you know, I think it was yeah. just zoomed out further, and when I watched it for real, it was zoomed in more. But other than that, yeah, pretty yeah. much everything. Yeah, that, that's yeah that that's the one scene where where Demi and friends sort of indulge their inner macabre, and again, right. it it works. It's 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 Hannibal Lecter, a character that you like is a strong word, but you certainly you know you you're compelled by him, yep. and he's killing police officers, which in movie morality is a, you know, it's, he's not, you know, murdering orphans and stuff in movie morality world, you know, for better or worse, those are, you know, safer victims. You know, no one's going to protest that the bad guy killed the police officer during his getaway, but otherwise, yeah, the, the film is very stark. It is very realistic, but it also has this, because of the way it's composed and the way it's constructed, it has this lyrical fairy tale quality. I know I keep coming back to that, <laughs> but to me, it is, you know, it has, unlike really any serial killer film that's followed in its wake, it's, it feels like one of the great American myths. A part of that is because you have this young woman who, you know, is in a world full of people that want to implicitly or explicitly victimize her and she has to go into the dungeon and confront the monsters and save the princess and in that said it's you know it's 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 a skewed fairy tale because obviously there's no knight in shining armor she's you know not to be a cliche but she's her own hero and i still think that's one of you know it's 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 it made it made me very happy especially after the fact that jodie foster won the oscar as well right. not only is that one of the great on-screen cinematic heroines at least in terms of genre filmmaking. But the fact that she won too meant that people actually paid attention to the movie. It wasn't right. just, oh, wow, Hannibal Lecter was so incredible. I love Anthony Hopkins' work in the film. I mean, I'm not going to, yeah. you know, it, it's if ever a guy deserved to win Best Actor for like 25 minutes of screen time, it's him. All due respect to Nick Nolte. God, can you imagine if you're Nick Nolte? You're up for the Oscar two serious times. And one time you lose to Anthony Hopkins in what's, let's be honest, a supporting role. And the other time you lose to Roberto Benigni. Oh, yeah. In, in, in a yeah. win that I'm sure halfway through his speech, they were like, can we get a do-over? <laughs> That's funny you bring that up. Because I actually, like, as a, as a kid, I, I gravitated to Hannibal. Because in case you can't tell, I am a horror guy. And that was always my favorite character. But as an adult, the more I've watched it, I really go towards the character of Clarice more, you know. So I'm I am glad they both won. Um, like, as good as Anthony Hopkins is, I do think Jodie Foster is a little bit better. 
playing off of him. Just her reactions to the things he's. Well, it's a harder role, right? You know, she's stereotypically speaking, she's the Ethan Hawke to his Denzel Washington, and I'm always happy when the 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 more you know the harder role you know gets the recognition as well. You know, I mean, I have nothing against Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man, but flip a coin if I want to give somebody an Oscar from that movie, I would have given it to Tom Cruise. <laughs> no, I was going to actually lead into the next part. So, what do you want to say first before we get there? We talked a lot about this, but in case people are listening that may not have seen it, why don't you give a brief synopsis for the actual film and how it plays out? I know we've talked a Who lot. The world but... would listen to this or watch this without having seen the film. Because I, I well, that's <laughs> well, that's one thing I do. I don't, I don't go into a whole lot of spoilers most of the time. So no, no, but... I, it's fine. <laughs> uh, based on the Thomas Harris novel that was published in, I believe, 1987, the Silence of the Lambs. The novel was actually a sequel to a 1981 novel called Red Dragon, which concerned an FBI profiler, retired, named Will Graham, who gets recruited back into the field to go after a serial killer and then ends up having to reacquaint himself with an incarcerated serial killer, uh, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a renowned psychiatrist that was a, a cannibalistic serial killer on the side. Um, long story short, he caught Hannibal Lecter, but not before Hannibal Lecter grievously wounded him. Um, so he goes back and they have to sort of loosely team up to catch the tooth fairy. Several years later, I think it's, I mean, yeah, several years later, Hannibal Lecter's still in jail. There's a new serial killer out there called Buffalo Bill, who is murdering and skidding, partially skidding, uh, young women in uh, around uh, basically small town Americana. Uh, the Midwest, I think. And Jack Crawford, who was Will's boss in Red Dragon, which was earlier made into a movie by Michael Mann called Manhunter, decides to see if Annabelle Lecter can offer any assistance on catching this guy. And for here, he recruits a trainee who's about to graduate, Corey Starling. She is from, I want to say Memphis, but don't quote me on that. Appalachians, I believe. I was like, she's from um, West Virginia. She, I apologize. Yes, yes, West Virginia. West Virginia. And she's played by Jodie Foster, who would eventually win the Oscar for this picture, becoming, I believe, the second actress ever to win Best Actress Oscars for back-to-back performances. Because she had won three years ago, deservedly, for The Accused, where she played a rape victim that, what? yeah, uh, in, in her struggle with the the system. You know, to quote the poster, the first cry was for help, the second was for justice. That is a film that sadly has not aged a day. But anyway, back to Sansa Lamps. <laughs> she is sent into to consult Hannibal Lecter in hopes that he will be able to provide clues to catch Buffalo Bill. And that's really all you need to know. <laughs> I agree. I agree. If you uh, haven't seen it, yeah. And, and, we'll, it is, and we'll bring that back up later as well. Yeah. It's 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 not you know, even though it's considered sort of the, you know, the, the mother slash father of the modern serial killer picture, it doesn't have a lot of action. It doesn't have a lot of conventional shocks and scares and jump scares. There are a few. Jonathan Demme is a playful director. There's one bit that I have to assume is a winking homage to Jaws, but it works in the context of the picture. And yeah, so I mean, that's plot wise, that's, that's all you need. So you've touched on Manhunter, but I want to get your thoughts on that's the prequel, but all the sequels, Hannibal, 
when they redid the prequel as Red Dragon so they could have Anthony Hopkins involved. And then if you want to talk about Hannibal Rising, that's up to you. <laughs> that's not my <laughs> I can, because I actually have some things. That I, I watched it recently for a commentary. Oh, okay, um, then. Good. We actually I, I, allow me to plug a friend's podcast, at now, Out Now with Aaron and Abe. They do weekly podcasts, and they do periodic commentaries, and I will sometimes join them for the commentaries. And actually, we did all five Hannibal Lecter movies in the first five months of the year. So these oh, are wow. all pretty fresh in my head. Okay, good. Go for it. Talk um, about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Manhunter, Manhunter was released in 1986. It was changed from the original title of the book, which is Red Dragon, allegedly because they didn't want people to think it was a Cold War movie. That may or may not be true. That's what I always heard. It was released to relatively, you know, relative, uh, nobody showed up. And to be fair, it's... It's a very good picture. It's a stickly Michael Mann picture. And Hannibal Lecter, played by Brian Cox, he's barely a footnote in the picture. You know, for better or worse, and in some ways better. I will say this. I love Anthony Hopkins. I love Matt Mickelson in television's Hannibal. But Brian Cox is the only Dr. Lecter on screen that I legit believe was actually a working therapist that, you know, saw patients and did talk therapy and you know you know, filled out paperwork and you know because you know it's again he's he's very just he comes off as just a regular guy you know he's a little creepy but you know so i i you know again i could see him being a run-of-the-mill therapist who the police would consult before they found out he was a murderer <laughs> like I, I i assume you've seen Annabelle the show right yes yes I mean, you know, I like it. I think it's great fun. But obviously, there's a certain camp involved there. Yeah. You know, it's just like, this is the guy you're bringing into. You got any red flags here? He's he's kind of creepy. And he's just really weird. <laughs> but anyway, I'm getting way out of the game here. I first saw Manhunter before I saw South Lambs. Oh, because again... Well, see, here's why. This is, goes back to something else I was talking about. I was allowed to see movies that were rated R if they were on network TV. Maybe a month, maybe less after Silence of the Lambs came out, after it had been a huge mega hit, NBC aired Manhunter and hyped it as a prequel to Silence of the Lambs. See, my, my viewing of Manhunter came completely different. Uh, I remember 2001, I just gotten a DVD player. My mom was trying to buy me some DVDs, so she was in the store. And this guy apparently started talking to her and she told her what I was into and that Silence of the Lambs was my favorite. And he recommended Manhunter for her. So that's yeah, And it, it worked perfectly for me. But I got to say this and see if you make this correlation because I never do. He also said, if your son's into horror, this is 2001. So Lord of the Rings is coming out that December, right? He says... <laughs> He says, if your son's into horror, he's going to be excited for December because Lord of the Rings is finally coming out. And I'm like, they don't go together, though. Not for me. I've never been into that. So I don't know. Do you make that correlation? Uh, oddly, yes. Only okay. I th- and I don't know when this conversation took place, so I apologize. But what struck me as, as interesting, and I was actually talking to somebody else about this in relation to what they did that Dune isn't yet doing. They sold Fellowship of the Ring like a horror movie. When it was just time to sell Just Fellowship of the Ring as a standalone movie that's coming to theaters soon, it was sold as, you know, these scary creatures are coming after us because Frodo's got the ring. And, you know, I remember one big trailer line was, you know, uh, 
uh, what's his name, Viggo Morrison saying, you know, are you frightened? Yes, of course. Not nearly frightened enough. Bum, 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 bum. So they really were selling, you know, sort of the, the, the fantastical dread. Okay. I mean, again, they weren't selling it as a better horizon or anything like that. Right. It was something that stuck out at the time because, again, that, that was something that would appeal to people that weren't necessarily interested in the source material. Like, oh, this is a big budget fantasy film with scary stuff in it. Interesting. And obviously it worked. But, but Manhunter, the last time I watched it, which was you know back in January, I think, what stood out is it's basically a cop movie. I mean, it's the Will Graham story. Everything else is seasoning. Hannibal Lecter is seasoning. Uh, Flora Hyde is, is just to support you know a minor character. Uh, Jack Crawford is just the boss. But it is the Will Graham story in a way that very much sets them apart from everything else that would follow. Uh, Hannibal, Hannibal is a weird one. Hannibal was based on a book that to me always felt like Thomas Harris giving basically an extended middle finger to the people that saw or read Silence of the Lambs and took Hannibal Lecter as a, a glorified anti-hero. I don't think he ever expected or wanted Hannibal Lecter to be anything other than reviled or you know frightened of. And especially in the book, the film, you know, it, it, so it was very much, you know, Oh, you idiots want, you know, that think that Lecter is an okay guy and he just wants to protect Clarice and they're he's secretly in love with her and she should be in love with him. And here you go, you idiots. This is what you want. And he made it as ridiculous as humanly possible. He was very ahead of the curve in terms of toxic shipping, but that's, that's a long conversation for another day. <laughs> the short version, shipping is awesome. Just don't get emotionally invested in it. You know, it's, 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 <laughs> If, if you think Kylo and Ray should have sex together, awesome, great, knock yourself out. If you are emotionally devastated when they don't, that's an issue. But uh, so in that way, I think he was very ahead of the curve on that particular, that particular facet of fandom. But the movie, either it doesn't get the joke, and I have a tough time believing that because Ridley Scott's a smart guy, or it just tried to tell to make a somewhat more serious prestigious elevate you know, pardon the term elevated horror film off of this really goofball cornball pulp fiction horror novel and i'm not saying that book is terrific it's not but i admire its chutzpah and the movie kind of tries to have its cake and eat it too i think where it tries to present Clarice as the strong empowered character and tries to, you know, have the movie as this big grandiose, you know, epic horror film with this subject matter that is, you know, again, I think it's a little campy. I'll say, I oh, think yeah. the Ray Liotta and scene I, sells I, that if you can. <laughs> I mean, Oh yeah. And I, I was always surprised at the number of people that I knew in my circle that didn't know that scene was coming. Because to me, you know, I read Entertainment Weekly, I read Premiere, I followed the movie blogs, I read the book, minor detail. So for me, I mean, surely everybody knew about that scene. That was one thing if you read the book that you talked about. You know, the, the, the book ends with Clarice being brainwashed and her and Hannibal running off as lovers. And oh yeah, you know, uh, Kendrick's brains get eaten. You know, they, they kill Kendrick and eat his brains while he's still alive. Wow. Having said that, I saw the film twice in theaters by happenstance, and it was fun watching that scene play out to a packed audience that didn't know it was coming. 
Yeah, I had not read the book at that time. I read it afterwards, so I didn't know it was coming. But I remember had to convince my stepdad to take me to go see it because I was 15, I think, when it came out and it was rated R. So they didn't want to let me take ghost. Yeah, my dad would have let me go on my own because I would want to see R-rated movies at 10. No, just tell you're not that younger than me. I've, I've seen much worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only, I, was I, remember, 20, I was not quite 21, so it's not too bad. Okay, yeah, I would have. That was 2001, so I would have turned 16 that year, but I'm pretty sure it came out yeah. February to capitalize on Silence Yeah, of Lambs, same so. weekend as uh, yeah. Silence, 10 years later, yeah. exactly. That's what I thought. But I remember the only thing, he was like, oh, it wasn't too bad because they only had a drawing of nudity. It, it's just, it's funny to me how parents are sometimes, they, I, that's all they focus on. If it didn't have nudity, it's good, you know? Sure, he had his yeah, head open, eating his brains, but that's all right. <laughs> and that was, you know, to my advantage, you know, it's, 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 I never, you know, not to be weird, but I never cared about boobs in movies. I mean, it's it's whatever. If I wanted an R-rated film, I wanted action and violence and intensity and all that jazz. Profanity, I don't care. I knew not to cuss in front of strangers. Great. Or, you know, and cuss in front of, you know, at school or whatever. But yeah, fun fact about Hannibal, that movie opened with a $58 million opening weekend in February of 20, 2001. At the time, that was the third biggest opening weekend for any movie ever. Had to be the highest R-rated <laughs> at the time, right? Oh, oh yeah. It was, I think, it, was, I think, yeah. it was behind only The Phantom Menace and The Lost World. It opened bigger than X-Men. It opened bigger than Toy Story 2. It opened bigger than Mission Impossible 2. Austin Powers 2. And then a few months later, The Mummy Returns would kick off summer 2001 with $68 million, which was almost close to The Lost World. Lost World had opened to $74 million Friday, Sunday over a $92 million Friday, Monday, Memorial Day weekend in 1997. Oh my goodness. A record that a lot of folks thought that's an an easy one because that kept the record for up until Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in November of 2001. Wow. Because Star Wars didn't beat it. Everybody, you know, a lot of us thought the Phantom Menace would, you know, people thought the Phantom Menace would hit the first $100 million three-day opening. It took five days and there were folks that were like, hmm, is this a disappointment? I'm not sure. It only did 64 million on three days and 105 in five days. And my thing was though is, look, you spend three weeks telling everybody that there's not gonna be a ticket left in the house. A lot of people probably stayed home. They <laughs> thought everything would be sold out. But the next weekend, Memorial Day weekend, it dropped by like 25% and became the first movie to cross $200 million in 13 days. And, you know, it, it played like a Star Wars movie after the opening weekend. Because, yeah. you know, obviously it legged out all summer. Made it, it's still one of the leggiest super blockbusters of all time. Because it made like six and a half times its three-day opening. Oh, there you go. Well, let's get this back on track. Let's talk yeah. about Red Dragon a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Red Dragon. Red Dragon came out in October of 2002. After the blowout success of Hannibal, which made $350 million on an $80 million budget, uh, compared to Sansa Lambs, which made I think two fifty ish. You'll have to Google that one. I think it's two fifty yeah. okay. on a like a fifteen million dollar budget. The God, what's his name? The, the King Kong producer, Dino, Dino, Dino. Oh, Dino De Laurentiis. Thank you, God. Okay. You're awesome, Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, he had the right because he had the rights to Red Dragon because he he had produced Manhunter, so he had the rights to those characters. He didn't have the rights to Clarice Starling or anything like that. So after Hannibal went bonkers, he said, well, okay, let's do another Red Dragon. 
will have a will have Anthony Hopkins come back and reprise as Hannibal Lecter. That'll connect it to the other two films, and we'll make it a little bit more faithful to the book. And it was, you know, I, I, you know, Red Dragon or Manhunter is a very good movie, but there are a number of, of deviations. That's fine. It's an adaptation. The one thing that always annoyed me about Red Dragon is why they didn't wait for, for Scott Glenn to be available. Because if you think of Silence of the Lambs, the three legacy characters that matter, Cody Starling, who obviously isn't going to be in it for obvious reasons, you know, Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins is Lecter, and Scott Glenn is Jack Crawford. So now you have this new, in the world of Hannibal Lecter movie, where the only guy that of, of consequence that comes back is Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hill shows up again as Chilton in... And he's usually a wonderful actor, and I'm a big fan, but it's one of his worst performances. Brett Ratner, without getting into his off-screen baggage, is generally good at finding the best actors he can and basically saying, okay, go play, come back before dark. You know, I am a smart enough filmmaker to know when I do or don't need, you know, that I don't need to direct Alan Arkin or Adam Arkin, the older one, yeah, Alan Arkin, Alan Arkin uh, in yeah. something like Tower Heist. And he, he said this, you know, especially when he was starting out, it's like, look, I'm a newbie when he was doing like Rush Hour or whatever. You know, I'm going to get the best people that I could get, the best dramatic actors, the best, you know, everyone, because, you know, I need them to make me look good. That Those are my words, not his, but, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Brett Ratner directs Red Dragon. It's it's okay. It's fine. It's I liked it better than Hannibal, it's by default. It's wonderfully cast. Edward Norton is very good. Samantha Morton is very good. Ray Fiennes is almost cast too much to type as as the you know as Flora Eye, but he's still very good in it. But it only makes around ninety three million domestic, and I think like under a hundred, excuse me, under two hundred worldwide on like a seventy million dollar budget. So that that you know, I think at least some of the appeal of the franchise was rooted in Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. And Clarice Starling, right. ideally is Jodie Foster, but as we saw with Hannibal with Julianne Moore, not a deal breaker. And as you'll see, you know, if I may skip ahead a moment here, you know, in NBC's Hannibal, which ran for three seasons that nobody watched, despite great reviews and all that, yeah, that was just Hannibal, you know, as a as a as a broad concept. Obviously, Clarice was not there. Jack Crawford was there. The Tooth Fairy eventually showed up. Yada yada yada. It you know it kind of went wacky in terms of you know the you know the, the third season was a loose adaptation of Hannibal that became a loose adaptation of Red Dragon. And there, I think the camp works for that show. So the, the Hannibal subject matter was right at home on that on Brian Fuller's show. And then just this season, you had CBS doing a standalone Clarice show which, you know, they were forbidden from mentioning Hannibal Lecter right. because of rights issues. It wasn't a terrible show, but it was also not a very good one. But again, it was a classic Hollywood mistake of mistaking the IP in the abstract for something audiences wanted to see. And, you know, without getting on a soapbox and going into box office stuff here, the explosive success of Hannibal 20 years ago, I think tricked Hollywood and certainly tricked Dino De Laurentiis into thinking that Hannibal Lecter as a character was inherently a bankable franchise. And I think the truth is just people really liked Silence of the Lambs because it was great. And people really looked forward to Hannibal. And there, you know, there are plenty of people that think it's a good movie. You know, it's, I'm not going to begrudge them that. It's, it's well-made. But anyway, 
people were people showed up to Hannibal because I like Silence of Lambs. It didn't mean that they want to see the yeah they didn't want to see the further adventures of Hannibal Lecter. Which brings us to Hannibal Rising. Yes, there you which go. Is the last Hannibal Lecter <laughs> picture, which came out in the same February weekend as Silence of Lambs and Hannibal, but uh, 2007. Yep. It's a very well made, very polished, very well acted movie that still isn't very engrossing and or entertaining. Partly because, again, we don't need to see the traumatic origin story of Hannibal Lecter. He doesn't need a Batman Begins. You know who else doesn't need a Batman Begins? Snake Eyes. (laughs) Snake Eyes does not need a Batman Begins. (laughs) You know who else didn't need a Batman Begins? Oh, boy. Robin Hood, Peter Pan, King Arthur, uh, Han Solo. That's another one. Eventually, Hollywood will learn that not everybody needs a Batman Begins. The only time where it really worked was Casino Royale, because James Bond is such a huge character that people will show up come hell or high water. So the idea of people that were already interested in a James Bond film thought, oh, this one looks very different from most James Bond films, but it looks very good. (laughs) And the reviews were terrific. So people showed up. But that opened lower than Die Another Day. And it made about the same domestically. It went bonkers overseas, but that's another story. Uh, the Daniel Craig films coincided with a massive overseas expansion for Hollywood films in general. Okay. You know, from everything from James Bond to Mission Impossible to the Fast and Furious franchise, which went bonkers over. You know, the fourth film was the first, I believe, was the first one that made more overseas than in North America. Oh, wow. Okay. Not by a lot. But then Fast 9 in 2011, which is The Empire Strikes Back in the series and is somehow one of the greatest action movies in the last 25 years. I have no idea how they pulled that off. That's the one where it just went bonkers overseas, where it did 200 million domestic and 600 million worldwide. And the rest is history. Think about Hannibal Rising. It came out in 2007. Remember when X-Men First Class came out in 2011? Very good. Might be my favorite X-Men movie. What did everybody say? We want a whole movie with Magneto as a Nazi hunter. That would be so cool. That was Hannibal Rising. That movie is basically Magneto Nazi Hunter. Um, <laughs> I thought about it like that, but... <laughs> neither did I till I saw it most recently, because I saw it back in 2007 and barely got another thought. I was going to say, that's, that's um, kind of the thing. I saw it in 2007, I, and I have not gone back to watch it again, so... Yeah. So I, you know, I wonder if the film had been the exact same movie, but it had been Magneto Nazi Hunter, would it have been better reviewed? Because I think at that point we were judging comic book movies on a curve. No, this is so good for a comic book movie. Right. And I still think we do to a certain extent, but now you have this contingent, not everybody, but a contingent of fandom that's gone from, wow, these movies are good for comic book movies to this is the, these are the only movies that matter, which is unfortunate. But that's a rant for another day. But yeah, Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal Rising came and went. Nobody showed up. Not shockingly. Even then, Hollywood should have taken notice of this stuff. Just Again, not every vaguely recognizable character needs a dark and gritty, sympathetic origin story. Didn't work for Cruella de Vil. I like that film. And I think it did about as well as it could have been expected, even outside of COVID. But, it, you know, 230 worldwide on a $100 million budget. They're not going to lose money on it, but it's not a 
grand franchise in the making. Right. All right, Scott. Um, so this is this is where we're gonna go now. Talked about the sequels. Now I want you to race them all, and I want you to tell me if you had gotten your own sequel, what you would have liked to have seen. Two Silence of the Lamb. So you can bring back, uh, and you can go back into the '90s, not a 30 year later sequel. <laughs> I mean, am I allowed to be a schmuck and say I don't need a sequel? I, I realize, I realize, because... I wouldn't want it either. Trust me. I okay, let me think. Uh, if if I am forced and or given ungodly amounts of money to make a sequel, honestly, it would be. That's the question. The, the one good thing about Hannibal, especially the movie, is that it's nothing like Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs. It's, you know, you could easily see a third book slash movie where it's Clarice and there's another killer on the loose and she's got to find Hannibal because he has, you know, information that might lead to the killer. And hey, look, maybe Will Graham's being tagged along for the ride this time. I think commercially, that would have been the pitch I would have gone with. Right. It certainly would be the pitch if you ever do a legacy sequel. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you I agree get Jodie Foster to come back. You get Anthony Hopkins to come back, and you find you know Edward Norton, you know, uh, and you know, ideally Scott Glenn, but no harm in in, in uh, Harvey Keitel. So yeah, it's not something I want. Right. But it would be certainly something you know if you were going to go that route. I certainly think if you're going to make a sequel, you if you get the original cast, don't bother. This isn't a you know this isn't a matter where you could do a remake of Silence of the Lambs with today's you know uh, you know Kirsten Stewart as Clarice Starling. I think of who's Jodie Foster today. Oh no, you're actually oh, le- you're le- you're yeah, leading so me perfectly into the next part because that's what <laughs> I want you to do is remake Silence of the Lambs with today's actors. Shit, no. Um, <laughs> okay, if I have if I have to do that with today's actors. The, the caveat that I might get the ages wrong, but you know what what actors are what age? Again, you know, to me, you know, Kirsten Stewart, she's very she's friends with Jodie Foster. They've known each other for years. It would be kind of a quasi passing of the torch type thing. But if you want somebody that isn't going to piss off the internet, except that matters, doesn't. You know, someone like uh, Anya Taylor Joy. Okay, that would be typecasting, but it would work. And I, I, as Hannibal Lecter. Uh, See, the thing is, nobody, very few people knew who Anthony Hopkins was in 91. So the, the, that was, you know, it was a huge surprise. It wasn't somebody with you know, baked-in considerations. So I would say you'd have to have someone that's against type. So who's British in their, what, late 40s, I think? I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch would be cast into type. I mean, basically play that in Star Trek II anyway. Jared Harris would make a great Hannibal Lecter, but he's kind of done that in Sherlock Holmes already. Sorry, I'm, I'm generally trying to give this... Okay, let's go back to Hannibal Lecter. Uh, let's go back. Uh, Jamie Gum. Jamie Gum could just be, you know, anybody. I mean, you know, uh, sexual casting, frankly. And again, I think as good as Ted Levine was in that picture, and he's terrific in it. Yeah. You know, it, again, it was helped by the audience not having any idea who that was. I mean, he had... I mean, it wasn't his first movie or anything, but... Right. I, I, can't think any, yeah, I can't think offhand of any free Sansalans Ted Levine movies that come to me. So I guess I wish John Hurt was still alive. Let's see. So yeah, for for uh, Jamie Gunn, I would scum. I would say you know what would make a fun. Well, he's too young. But I would say Daniel Kaluuya. That would be, oh. be a fun lector, but he's probably too young. So I guess if you wait ten years. <laughs> <There> um, you <go. laughs> 
Although, I mean, he won. He just won an Oscar for playing someone who I think is ten years older than he is. So well, theoretically, he could he'd be ten years old than he was when he died. Because yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 the only artistically valuable reason to remake this picture is to give underrepresented demographics the chance to play in a sandbox from which they were excluded back when these films were initially popular. And obviously, there's a whole subgenre of that. You know, uh, uh, a lot of the Will Packer films. You know, it's it's what women want, but with uh, 3GB Ensign this time. So you get what men want. want right. um, you know, Breaking In, which is Gabriel Union basically doing a, a home invasion diehard movie. You know, No Good Deed and The Intruder and uh, The Perfect Guy. Those are very 1990s suburban yeah. horror pictures. You know, your, your neighbor, roommate, friendly police officer is out to kill you but they star and center around demographics that didn't get to star in those movies 30 years ago. So in that sense, they're sort of new to you. And that's why they tend to be successful, frankly, or were prior to, you know, COVID and what have you. This is tough. Cause I yeah, mean, it is. <laughs> partially because I'm, I'm an idiot and I didn't Ben Mendelsohn. Okay. I casting his L, but he could do it. <laughs> As Lecter for, for Lecter. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. For Lecter, for Lecter. Again, you know, I, I feel bad for not thinking of more off the reservation choice, but and yeah, for for Buffalo, you know, obviously Jack Crawford could be anybody. I mean, it's it's it's, I mean, hell, Scott Glenn could probably still do it again. He's you know, <laughs> he's not he hasn't aged that badly. Otherwise, I mean, hell, John Ham, okay, John Ham, that works. Okay. <laughs> again, I again by default, I'm leaning into very specific typecasting, which I don't like to do. You know, it's just, <laughs> but. Okay, so fine. Anya Taylor uh, Joy as Clay Starling. Um, ben Mendelsohn as Annabelle Lecter. John Hamm as Jack Crawford. Just for shits and giggles, Kirsten Wig as Chilton. And would it be problematic to cast anyone other than a white guy as Buffalo Bill? Because <laughs> <laughs> on one hand, again, you want to see these actors playing roles that they otherwise wouldn't. On the other hand, Right. Yeah, there's, there's a certain <laughs> minefield. I think it's one of the reasons we never got a Black Lex Luthor, even though Denzel Washington would have walked away with that. Yeah, having said that, I liked, I actually like Jesse Eisenberg and Dawn of Justice. But again, conversation for another day. <laughs> are we giving up on Buffalo Bill? What are your ideas? You've obviously thought. No, about that's this. why I have it. That's why I don't. That's why I said I didn't want to have to do this. That's why I let someone else take this movie. Because <laughs> I'm with you on that. I do oh, not want to. I do not want to do it. <laughs> so I don't even think about it. I don't even think about it at all because I'm like, oh, that's why I was like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to think about it. It's perfect as it is. <laughs> uh, okay, we we got Anya Taylor Joy and Ben Mendelsohn. The rest can figure itself out. <laughs> and John Hamm is Crawford. There those you the go. top three. You know, those people get their name oh, above the title. That's it. That's the top three. All right. So this yeah. last part, in case, I mean, after this, this much. People should be sold, but in case someone's still not sold, maybe they don't like the serial killer type movies or they think it's too horror or something. Sell Silence of the Lambs to someone who hadn't seen it. One of the best American movies of all time. I mean, it's not, you know, in terms of graphic violence, you could handle it. It's not that bad. Uh, In terms of, you know, it's a little, you know, it is scary in a, a, I mean, it's not, oh my God, I'm hiding under the covers. Granted, I didn't see it in theaters. I imagine it was a different experience. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's you know, if you are someone that 
wants to be aware of cinematic heritage and movie history and blah, blah, blah. It's one of three movies to win all five of the top Oscars, picture, actor, actress, director, and screenplay, adaptive screenplay in this case, right. alongside One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest in 1976. And it happened one night in, I think, 1935. It's certainly one of the only horror-ish movies to win Best Picture. Alongside, you know, like two in the last three years, oddly <laughs> enough, is you had Parasite and The Shape of Water. Right. Both of which I would quantify as, you know, certainly hard genre pictures, which is why, you know, it annoys me when I see people whining about the, the Oscars, you know, being boring and, you know, they gave the Best Picture Oscar to a film about a woman that has sex with a fish. Yep. That's, that's not... That's not a normal best picture winner. No, <laughs> that's you're right. It's not. It's great. And they gave Guillermo del Toro an Oscar for directing a Guillermo del Toro type movie. They didn't wait for him to direct some, you know, upper crust prestigious biopic of whatever. <laughs> Winston Churchill or whatever. You know, it's basically like giving Wes Craven an Oscar for directing Scream. So yeah, I mean, it's, 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 if you're worried, it'll be too much for you. It's not. And it is one of the greatest mainstream studio Hollywood films ever made. Uh, I felt that way when I was a kid. And frankly, it has aged incredibly well, uh, both by being, I would say, better and also different from the deluge of serial killer fiction we've seen in the last 30 years. Much, some of which is very good. I love Seven. Seven, you know, I like, you know, the thing about Seven is that Seven is, if you're going to cash in on success of a recent smash, you make something that's entirely different. And Seven is entirely different from Silence of the Lambs. Just as Twilight was entirely different from Hunger, or Harry Potter, and <laughs> Hunger Games was entirely different from Twilight. So yeah, I mean, it's, 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 as far as selling people on it, you can take it, and it's one of the best movies ever made. Yep, and I think the only thing I'd really add is if you want a movie with, for my money, is probably the best written female character in a movie. Like such a strong character, including it's Star up there, yeah, yeah. I, I love, I love it. It's probably up there for me. Yeah, it's up there for me, no doubt. All right, Scott, I think right. that's gonna wrap um, this one up. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find you online, where they can find your work? Um, I write for Forbes.com, so please Google some variation of Scott Mendelson, Forbes, the ticket booth, and you will most certainly get one of my pages. Uh, I am on Twitter at, at Scott Mendelson. And I technically have a Facebook page, but that's mostly for like, I mean, you're welcome to glance, but it's mostly for, you know, anecdotes and family photos and stuff. All and, right. Uh, thank you very much. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. As always, you can follow the show at YNF Movie Pod on Twitter and Instagram, available wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to come back next week as I'll have a dear friend of mine, Chris, on the show, and we'll be talking about Death Becomes Her. And he'll try to convince you to make that your next favorite movie. You guys take care. I'll talk to you next time.